Plant Culture Podcast, and welcome to Season 3. I took a little midwinter break there, sort of writing and recording music. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you all. And thanks for giving me a little time off and sticking with the podcast. This episode brings us to sunny Tucson, Arizona, to speak with Kitty Kierlach and Jared R. McKinley of Spadefoot Nursery. We talk native plant nursery shop here, about being ecologists and not horticulturists, about getting people to buy ugly plants and weeds, accepting failure, why tomatoes are patriotic if you're Italian, and dumping chicken manure on people's heads. You'll want to stay tuned. You can find more about Spadefoot Nursery at spadefootnursery.com. Gosh, I should have checked that link before I said that, but I think that's right, and I found them on Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, if you're digging this podcast, you can find me on Instagram at at, at wildplantculture. It's uh, the totality of my social life, life right now as New Jersey is snowed in, quarantined, shut down. If you want to help out, a kindly review on the podcast platform of your choice helps too. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants. Right now, all of our plants are in deep plastic, steel, and snow tomb, but we are taking orders for spring at wildridgeplants.com. And we'll be adding a lot of new inventory as the weather warms. Back to sunny Tucson and Spadefoot Nursery. Looks like we're solid. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Is this a busy time for you or what does a seasonal schedule look like? You don't have seasons the same way that we do here. Yeah, that's correct. got busy really yeah we're just sort of ramping up into the spring season so everyone's getting ready to plant their summer gardens and it feels like it started a little early this year um just by a few weeks but um yeah it's uh this year compared to last year is just so different because of the pandemic um we were pretty we were pretty busy last year too and then when the pandemic hit, we were so busy that we, it was scary. You know, we, we actually went online. I mean, we, we closed down shop for some amount of time that I don't remember. In my mind, it's two weeks, but it might not have been that long. But we had to digitize everything to do like, you know, online ordering and curbside pickup. And we were the only nursery that did that at the time. Everyone thought we were overcautious. <laughs> But, uh, um, but it's been, it's surprisingly, even though we put that system together in a couple of days, it's been pretty, pretty, pretty smooth. Yeah. There's the occasional, uh, inventory discrepancy, you know, we just don't hit the right button and you forget to add that you got more of something or whatever, but it's pretty, 
pretty problem free considering what could have gone wrong. Yeah. So it's so hard to triangulate inventory with between like things that are actually going to grow into becoming inventory and things that are going to die and things that like people yeah. bought now and things that people want like three months from now or it, it worked yeah. out, but it's always like this somewhat mystical process. With, with the retail area, we really keep it separate from the growing area. So like um, we, we, we we're talking about doing more contract grows and stuff like that. But right now it's just uh, whatever, whatever we bring to the retail area, that's what's online. If it's at the nurse, if it's at the growing area, then we don't generally put it online. Um, just because usually, I mean, there's a lot of people who are ordering and picking up the same day and it's too complicated to, you know, figured out delaying that somehow. So we treat it just like a retail shop, you know. Is the winter a, a down season for you? Like, do you get to chill out or is it kind of like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for about a month? Not really even. Hey. <laughs> this year, it was like, uh, when did it... I kind of can't remember. I, f I mean, we closed for... Three weeks? I think two, two weeks. weeks. In yeah, we, December. And it was a little slow right before that, but not terribly slow. And uh, and when we opened back up in January, it was um, it wasn't slow. Still pretty steady. Yeah. We never really got very cold this year, so yeah. It was it was still good planting weather especially after our summer, the summer was brutal. It was the hottest and the driest year on record. Okay. Um, so we're definitely suffering climate change issues here. And um, um, yeah, it was just intense. And it's been every year, it's been like a record heat. Like it's this, this summer was, was the worst because at least we got a little rain, you know, like in the winter, but we had the combination of a, of a, of a shit monsoon and then um, La Nina, which makes us dry. So, um, so we just, it's, uh, it's desperate out there. As, as botanists, when we go in the field, um, it's depressing. It's like, everything's just so dead looking. And though those plants are all, they, they, they've evolved to survive that. Um, and they've probably gone through drier spells than, than what we have recorded for the last, what, 200 years for Arizona. But, still it's depressing <laughs> to go out there and just like, you know, it's going to take a couple of years for those plants to rebound. Um, yeah. Is it hard to do identification in a drought? <clears throat> Excuse me. Cause so much stuff is just like sort of dormant or, or hidden somewhere tucked away. Yeah. So some of it, it depends on what it is, but yeah, some things are, are uh, uh, hard to identify. And it, it is, we have a very different climate from you um and i'm somewhat familiar with your climate because i am from the hudson valley originally um so i know that uh, i know that climate um here is so different because it's really subtropical so i mean people think it's just a desert but we, we live in the sonoran desert which is bi-seasonal in the rainfall and um so it's the wettest desert in the world, but it's also subtropical. We're right, you know, our, our floor is very influenced by the tropics. So 
Um, we have the third largest flora in the country out of all the states, um, only beat out by Texas and California, and probably because they have coasts. Yeah. We don't have coasts. Or the same with birds, too, like the number three, which is surprising because we're desert, but um, it's the proximity to the tropics. And there's some so that makes botanizing interesting and different. Um, there are, uh, yeah, but the, and there's lots of little tucked away, even though, even though it's been a hard, dry year, we found, we find canyons, there's canyons that are, that are uh, intact and maybe not as florific as they usually are, but they're still uh, mind blowing. Our, our favorite place to go is called Sycamore Canyon. And uh, it's right on the border, right? It goes, it's a trail basically goes to the, goes to the Mexico. Um, in fact, there's a lot of um, trafficking that happened, has happened through there, probably not lately, but um, but in there are like um, Silatum, you know, the cliff break or cliff fern. Um, it looks like almost like Equisetum, but it's a fern. It grows out of cliffs. It's usually a tropical plant. We got it, got it in that canyon. There's um, all kinds of uh, cool tropical acanthaceae. There's um, maiden hair fern. Maiden, oh, maiden hair fern, which is um, actually shows up around Arizona, but it's especially cool there because, you know, you go just outside the canyon, it's dry, it's dry um, desert grassland. And then you get in the canyon and it's um, just, it's subtropical. So a lot of Northern records in there. Yeah, I'm uh, kind of pining away for Arizona. We have taken like two out of the last three years in February, we take a trip down to the Southwest. Not mm. this year because of COVID. And I won't say interviewing you guys is like vicarious way of like being in Arizona, <laughs> yeah. coincidence. But I was looking at my photos just to kind of prepare for this conversation, and I realized like how desperately nostalgic I was for the Southwest. I really love your landscape down there, and we were um, we were in Tucson basically a year ago, and in that area and exploring around, and just like. Yeah, you live in an incredible place. So I feel lucky about it. Yeah. It's uh I think it's contributed to um the native plant enthusiasm that we've had here for a long time. And it was the striking difference. Like when I first moved here, I moved here like 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago to go to college. Um she grew up here. Um, but uh I just remember um how the, the idea of uh, planting native plants was like um, different. It was new for me because I had grown up in the Northeast and then I had just lived in California and people just don't plant native plants. Um, and there isn't that same enthusiasm, but here it's different. And I think partly it's because it's such a tough environment, you know, and also because people just thought Tucson was a shit place for so long. <laughs> We, we, uh, we sort of love that about Tucson. Like uh, even in history books, you read that people just, they're like, Tucson, what the fuck is going on with that place? And partly it's because it, it's still very Mexican. And so Anglos come here and they don't get it. Um, but uh, um, when I first got here, I was just in love with it because the, um, the regional identity was so strong right down to the landscape, you know? Um, Cause you, you know, you can't grow hydrangeas here. You can't grow, uh, you know, rhododendrons and whatever the hell people, <laughs> um, 
you can grow some plants that are in the trade, you know, and they're definitely like, if you go to Phoenix, they're in denial about where they live. Very different over in Phoenix. Um, but in Tucson, you know, people love, they want to plant creosote bushes and, and saguaros. So <clears throat> even you growing up here, like there's like that pride that Tucsonans have. Besides Alaskans, um, Arizonans are the um, people that I see the most wearing their own shirts. Uh -huh. You know, like, Californians don't wear California shirts. Like, you know, uh, if you live in Oregon, people don't wear Oregon shirts. Like, it's just like, oh, that's uh, what tourists do. But um, in Arizona, like everyone wears Arizona shirts. Yep. <laughs> they make fun of us in California when we go for the hall, you know, for the summer, not this year because of COVID, but we'll go to, we'll go to California and they know us there. They're like, they call us the zonies, you know, and like summertime, we all go there to go see the ocean and, and whatever, but we stand out cause we, you know. like a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Katie, um, you grew up in that area and can you, can you give me like a little bit of the backstory of the nursery and also yourself and how it all, how it all pans out and, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Tucson, um, and I lived on an acre of land. So, you know, I had friends who lived in developments across the street, but I lived on this sort of, um, it was almost like a little island of just nature and, um, and Iron, ironwood forest, ironwood forest. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had our own garden, we had animals. I grew up kind of on a farm, um, small homestead kind of farm. And then my dad um, is a plant guy. So he was working at nurseries and uh, going through horticulture sort of stuff. Um, but he's just a real big plant geek. Uh, so, you know, he was always like pointing to stuff and being like, this is blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, here, hold this. And like, let me get a picture of you next to this. And so we were very, we always went out into nature and we were very, um, I don't know, very dad. God, dad. <laughs> it was fun when we were young. And then as we turned into teenagers, it was like, oh God, are we stopping on the side of the road for another plant? <laughs> um, so now, now it's your adult nightmare too. <laughs> now I do it to myself. Yeah. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's worse than me now. You know, when we first got together, um, I was, I had been away from plants for a while we sort of came back into plants together. Um, I mean, I never, you never totally give it up, but um, I took a detour and went into publishing and, and event production and stuff like that for a while. Um, and so like, I was away from it. And then um, we sort of like slowly, it was leaking into our lives first through just on our, at our home. And then, yeah. And then, yeah, and then we accidentally started a nursery. <laughs> I still don't quite know how it happened. <laughs> uh, it, it just sort of, it was like a, we were supposed to be helping my dad try to sell plants in Tucson because he lives out in Cochise County um, and he sells at farmer's markets and stuff. So we're like, oh, well, we'll just take some of your plants and help you sell stuff, you know down here down here and yeah. get you more money so you can retire uh and then it just kind of snowballed and we were 
buying plants and doing farmers markets and sales and just like getting bigger and bigger and busier and busier and and still working at night yeah we still had service day jobs yeah service industry (laughs) night jobs yeah so like when we first started the nursery i thought we'd be doing both for a while um but people were really into what we're doing um even though tucson has a very um strong connection to native flora and all that um there's not a lot of really good native plant nurseries here um there's one the desert survivors is a really good place that's pretty um, well known and um but uh we're the only other one and um and we're the weirdos like we're a little weirder than there you are even because we're um we're sort of committed to being organic um and our it's a, a very strong ecology background rather than the horticulture background most people who own nurseries are, are horticulturists um so when you come from an ecology background and then someone tries to tell you that grub worms kill trees you're like that's kind of bullshit <laughs> you know and so like because the the nursery trade is just bombarded by um, com- you know companies that sell pesticides and and they've just all been indoctrinated like oh roundup's okay it's fine it goes away you know and <laughs> it only targets that one grass yeah right this is so much bs and so like um you know we were very committed to like being 100 percent organic which um i don't think any nursery in Tucson or any in the state even is in fact i think i feel like very few nurseries in the country that way um, because feeding organically in containers as you might know is kind of a challenge but we have committed to it and um and uh so yeah and we do also sell non-native plants we sell um because because we're fat kids and we love food uh we love to grow our food and um and so uh that sort of got us also growing um domestic edible crops um yeah of course, excluding anything that can be a potential weed, you know. And so in our area, like whorehound is a famous herb that a lot of people grow, but it's a pretty invasive species. Mullen, very invasive. Um, so we, you know, we, we educate people not to plant that kind of stuff. Um, but in our yard, we have, we, you know, we sort of follow what we tell people to do, which is plant mostly native. Um, and you're planting it not for you, but for, the wildlife. Um, so if it, it's get, it gets eaten by a caterpillar, that's what you want. Um, we sell a lot of plants just because they're larval food plants for certain butterflies or moths. Trying to get people loves moths, you know. Um, so yeah, and uh, but then and then then also leaving room for human needs too. Um, you know, we try to get people to uh, you know give and take on that front. It's funny how many overlaps we have. In some ways, I just want to have a big conversation with you guys, and otherwise, I'm going to try to keep it moving as an as an integral and not get just so into nuts and bolts. But you know, we also grow chemical free, and um, you know, there's just a lot of figuring out. And ultimately, yeah. we haven't found it to be that difficult. But it really runs contra to so much of information that's out there about how to grow things. I mean, even like. How to grow ferns from spores like the first thing is like completely douse your medium in fungicide and it's like i mean you can either strive to have a completely <laughs> sterile world and a completely sterile nursery which i think is 
illusory. It's like impossible. Or you can have, try to have as much diversity in life in your nursery so that things become accommodated to that as quickly as possible. And if they don't make it, that's why we grow like 120 different species because every something's going to have a rough ride, but like there's resiliency in there. That's just sort of like an ecosystem. That's what we always say, except failure. You know, like if you have a crop that fails for some reason, um, you know, uh, the one nursery that's organic, or I mean, that was organic, that the other native plant nursery, we're, we're friends with them and, and close to them. But uh, I am a little bit disappointed because they were organic. Um, I think they always fed still with um, synthetic fertilizers, but they were, they were um, pesticide free. And then they had some problem. And they fought it and they were just, they, they used that as an excuse of like, well, we can't always do that, you know? And in my opinion, I feel like you just accept failure. Like, like it's okay, let a crop go. And, you know, the cost of trying to like be bullheaded about it is. Well, and that's when you focus on a different crop and you educate your audience about a different crop and be like, well, hopefully we'll have this one that failed next yeah. year. Yeah. Sort of like, there's no shortage of plants to, yeah. to grow, that's so, for sure. I mean, it sounds like you have a huge flora there and you must be always experimenting with stuff and some things work out, some things don't, right? Yeah, um, there's some things that everyone asks for all the time yeah. and it's frustrating because, you know, like um, Condalia warnockii is this uh, really cool Ramnacee plant that everybody wants and... Um, and it's so hard to germinate and, and, you know, she's trying to figure out how to do that. Like there's always that too, you know, trying to make them behave in uh, yeah. cultivation. Some plants just won't. So, you know, yeah. there's just stuff that people will never have, which makes them even cooler. Well, there's a couple of plants that I'm like, if I could just grow this, I could retire because there's a yeah. but I can't <laughs> fucking grow it. Like, I mean, yeah. we try every year and we're innovating, but like, they're hard to germinate. They're hard to keep alive. They hate being in pots. They don't want to transplant. They probably have some kind of sophisticated underground connection to their soil biome. And like replicating that in like a plastic pot that you have for like three months, six months, a year and a half, whatever the residency is like, or maybe it's great. And then it doesn't overwinter or like the slugs eat it or whatever. And it's like, right. Well, yeah. well, maybe next year people call up and go, sorry, we'll have that in three years. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, we always try to get people we post about plants that will never grow too because (laughs) they're either rare and we don't want to collect the seed or they're or they have some kind of weird soil relationship you know like native orchids or like you know um, the broom rapes which you know are really cool plants and uh, we want people to be aware of them so we get people to go hiking and and you know and also just to say hey you know um, you don't have to own everything in nature like some of it could be just you know, always wild and, and let, let's let it be there because like, um, you know, we're not going to be able to bring everything back if we destroy everything. So, yeah. Are you, are you sometimes like sort of discouraging people from like basically <laughs> telling people like, no, don't, don't buy that. Like something you have, but you're like, nah, you, you really shouldn't get that. <laughs> we're, we're pretty good at, well, if we think they're going to kill right. it, yeah 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 but if they're if, if we're they like start asking about return policies yeah and like, then you're like mm, maybe you don't need this plant maybe you should get a plastic one yeah <laughs> yeah if people are when people treat 
we have a slogan that, that that's at the nursery and it says plants are not furniture and it's you know especially in this day of instagram you know everything's with a white wall in the background and like perfect my sun hat and my my border collie you know and here's my name like, like a little I hate bit desaturated like, there's some brushed steel or aluminum and it's like yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah we want to we want to keep it shitty so like we, we try to we try to uh you know uh, be very honest about things and we tell people like hey this plant looks like crap half the year you know and you and you like that because that's where you live and that's that season of the plant. It's nice to um, appreciate the season of a plant, not expect it. Do, do you look good every day, all day? Like, what do you look like when you wake up in the morning, you know? Or when it's 115 degrees outside, like, <laughs> how do you feel? So yeah, we, uh, we generally try and educate more than we discourage, but there are random people every once in a while where you're like, mm, no, maybe don't get this <laughs> yeah my dad's really good about that yeah about, he is he does he'll actually be he cut. takes plants away from people <laughs> and i was like you you'll never make money but it's <laughs> the best thing i've ever seen <laughs> that's crazy um you guys have a, a strong background in edible um i don't know edible foods uh that's because i don't know much about it but you've alluded to it and I'm, i've seen it a little bit just poking around to try to figure out what you guys are all about i love to hear more about that just in terms of like where you guys are coming from what's your past history and then also of course um really interested in edible native plants and curious about you know even if you just want to mention a couple favorites um how they all tie in that would be awesome in general, we just like, we love food and we love to cook. And we, we love um, taking something out of the garden and uh, trying to, you know, um, use it or preserve it or, you know, and learning, just learning those skills that everyone used to kind of have, or at least everyone worth their salt used to have. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, so there's that. Um, and of course we were, um, we, we, uh, used to run a magazine um there's if you know edibles there's an edible and in, in 90 places 90 cities have edibles. yeah my wife uh we used to write for edible jersey so oh really yeah, yeah. i think nice. i might have written something or they interviewed us also way back so the, yeah the cool. basic idea is familiar you guys had a cool edible magazine with yeah so so um i was one of the founding members and um and uh, I didn't own it because I had to go to someone else who had some money. Um, and unfortunately, he's also the one that kind of drug, drug it down. But at least for a number of years, we were the biggest one in the country. Um, we were double the size of Edible Manhattan or Edible Boston, which were the biggest in the country, which is kind of surprising because we're a little shitty, shitty Tucson, you know, we're, we're not uh, affluent. Um, so um, it was very surprising, but it was it was all because of small contributions to the magazine. Um, you well, know. The, it was sort of that thing of like that Tucson and, you know, Southern Arizona pride again, where yeah. small businesses were really what sort of lifted this up and made it into this big, big thing. Um, and a lot of those, um, and they weren't even like, didn't even have to be food focused. It, it you know, ran the gamut. Yeah, um, the advertisers. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it also um, sort of helped pave way that, and a lot of 
a lot of other things, um, but Tucson got City of Gastronomy. Yeah. Uh, UNESCO. Three, two or three years ago? Uh, I think actually longer ago. Jeez. It's, yeah, time flies. But yeah, <laughs> we were a big part of that, of trying to get Tucson to become designated, and we got designated. So that was really cool. So there's that. What makes, what makes Tucson so good food-wise? I mean, I could probably make some guesses, but I, I want you to tell me. UNESCO is a lot more than just about restaurants, although we have amazing restaurants here. Um, but uh, it's also about food history. And so we have um, the oldest known uh, agricultural evidence of um, farming in uh, at the base of, uh, not far from where we live right here, at the base of A Mountain in Tucson, the oldest known um, evidence of agriculture in, the, in North America. So, um, so, you know, it goes back like four or 5,000 years, I think, something like that. And then the tie-in with all the indigenous uh, foods and people and... Um, the intact history, mm -hmm. the Spanish history, the Spanish influence. And then when the Chinese immigrants came here, they influenced our food. The chimichanga is a, um, they say, is a... Uh, a the Mexican know. version of an egg roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's this just confluence of in uh, in you know of of cultures the anglo the spanish the indigenous the mexican and then our unique climate and our unique ingredients too so we have a lot of cactus um so in terms of edible foods here there's a lot um um you know but they're very unconventional and different than the foods that we normally eat as you know european um influenced diet so a lot of cacti and agave and um, um, legumes that come from trees, you know, <laughs> uh, like mesquite. Um, yeah, it's, uh, so that's in our DNA for the nursery too. And um, we definitely teach, you know, we teach classes, we teach online classes, we're doing one tomorrow. Um, and we've taught um, quite a few classes just on that subject. You know, um, some of it is history, we also, there's a lot of innovation that's happening now and we try to uh, share that too. So like, um, you know, turning uh, wolfberry, which is Lyceum, uh, is our native version of the goji berry, same genus. In fact, same chemical properties and all that. Um, although like, I don't give a damn about medicinal plants. And I mean, I think it's interesting, but I'm not a, I'm not an herbalist or not, you know, I don't know anything about that, but um I just know the historical <laughs> side of it, you know, but, uh, it's, uh, we made wolfberry syrup the other day for cocktails, you know, and that's something that I'm pretty sure like nobody's done. Um, but we, and we used it and we made these, you know, pretty cool cocktails out of it. There's, there's a lot of room here for that because there's ingredients that people haven't played around with yet in, in a modern context. So mm -hmm. we, we love to do that. And then also just use influence from other places who have genius cuisines, you know, like um, um, we love Sichuan food and Chinese food has a lot of really incredible ingredients that we can mimic with our own native yeah. ingredients. So one of the things we haven't done yet, but I want to do is like making Tobanjan, but with our own native um, um, tepperies and our own native chilies and, and, uh, you know, create our own product using our own fermentation, whatever's floating around in the air here, you know, <laughs> um, uh, just, just, you know, learning from other cultures, how they've done food preservation and, and, uh, 
and, and all that and creating new ingredients. Anyway, UNESCO, it happened because of all those things. It was, it was our food history. It was the current, you know, rest, thriving restaurant scene here. Um, the, um, um, yeah, it was, uh, the history is really important though. Having that um, archeological history and, and indigenous um, food ways are, are very well known here. Whereas I think in a lot of other places, so much genocide happened that very little is known about what they actually ate. They might know the crops, but they don't know how they prepared them. Or, I think that I know. think that is largely true of the Northeast. I mean, maybe somebody knows, but mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes I feel like we're just gleaning from little scraps of textual records, and it's sort of like this was used for yeah. blah blah blah. But and that's a great lead, but it doesn't tell you about preparation. It's like if I handed you a potato and I was like, you know, like half the world subsists on this, you should try it and you bit into it. You'd be like, what the fuck is this thing? Because, <laughs> you know, like a French fry is great, but a raw potato, like, you know, you need right. to know that process. And I feel like that's that's true of so many of the native edibles. But it's cool that you guys have a much more intact indigenous food tradition there. That yeah. yeah. A lot of information has been lost, but I think it's, but there's still more here than, than a lot of other places. I mean, the tomato, we're, we've been talking a lot about tomatoes because, you know, we're start, we, we can start tomatoes this early if we cover them up from the cold nights. But I was just, uh, you know, we've been sharing this information on our um, social media, but the tomato, you know, the Italian food, uh, people think of as, as, you know, like ancient, relationship with tomato. They didn't start using tomatoes till the 1800s. They thought it was poisonous until then. And they only did it out of nationalism. It was this, this idea like, we need to have our own identity and our own cuisine. So let's do foods that have red, white, and green, just like our flag. And, um, and that's really how tomatoes became so big in Italian food. And, uh, but you know, tomatoes are from South America and Mexico, um, developed them, you know, at 500 BC, you know, and they had, um, you know, probably more of heirloom varieties of tomatoes in the 1500s when Spanish got there than we even have now. So it's a great story. It's a great story. It's a great story about Italy. It's like nationalism never tasted so good as a slice of pizza with basil <laughs> on it. You know, <laughs> imagine like the German flag as food, like, oh, fucking nasty. <laughs> <laughs> food platter but anyway i digress um you know i'm curious about i'm curious about botany um do you do you do but feel botany like in the sense that you're going out and do surveys or do you, do you feel botany to kind of like um support the nursery and the educational work that you guys do or like you know how, how do you find yourself out in the field as a as a botanist mostly it's just our own interest um but, which we share, but um, it's uh, it's basically we we we're starving all the time to be out in the field. Like I'd rather be in the field than anywhere else, and you're that yeah. way too. And so we, um, if we don't go for a few weeks, we start to get really depressed and irritable. Especially now. <laughs> Especially now. <laughs> and so, like um, you know, we try to get out as much as possible, and. Um, and it's just, you know, when we try to contribute to, uh, to the knowledge. So we find species like, like last spring, we saw an Asclepius that hadn't been seen in this one area at all and had only been seen in Arizona like two or three times 
We also found um, an, an Asteraceae. It's a, a, I don't know if you know chocolate flower, um, but uh, Berlandera lorata uh, is a native here. But we found another Berlandera um, monocephala, and it's only been seen like once or twice as well. And so, like we document those things when we find them, and um, and we try to contribute in that way. And our goal is once the nursery gets rolling a little bit more and we can actually hire someone to to do you know more of the retail stuff and take some of that burden off of us because right now we just run everything um then it'll give us more time to do some of that work um we do once in a while get seed from the field but we try not to um we only do it for things that are common um because uh, you know for obvious reasons, like um, especially in years like this, you don't want to um, burden the seed bank of an area. So, um, so uh, we try to um, rely on plants in cultivation. So we go to the botanical gardens and steal seeds, <laughs> and uh, and, <laughs> and the desert museum and all that. So uh, um, that's where we try to get our seeds, and from you know, friends and whatever. Are you guys like your property? You're pretty much like urban. You're in the city. Yeah. yeah. Although we have some, some of our stuff is grown out on um, either her dad's property out in Cochise County, or there's another property of, of a, a small nursery that we work with and we have some plants out there too. But we, we're looking to expand our growing area because we're, we're out of space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to picture like, I think of Tucson is like, it's urban, but it's like spread out urban. Like I don't remember like, you know, Manhattan, like there's a bunch of skyscrapers, but it's still fairly dense, right? So you guys- We're only a few blocks from the city oh, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, right. we're sort of on, just, we're like in a neighborhood just on the outskirts of downtown, but it's an older neighborhood. So it still had Mexican. pretty good um, plots as far oh. as like space. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I mean, that's neat that you guys are able to have that sort of divide between the wildness in your life of going out in the field and like this incredible state and also partaking of uh, urban experience. I feel like for us, I grew up in New York City, like super urban. I didn't know the difference between like a maple and an oak. And, uh, you know, we kind of chose the country lifestyle. And for New Jersey, we're, we're pretty rural here. And uh, there's things I don't miss about living in the city, but there are some things that I do and, uh, you know, especially music and art. And so awesome. it's, it's pretty cool that you guys are able to straddle that line and be like, um, you know, it sounds like you're really culturally with it. And you're also like, you know, hanging out in wild areas and discovering rare Asclepius species. So it's pretty rad. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good life. We, we talk about eventually that we're going to end up in that country, but yeah, <laughs> I but wonder sometimes how much <laughs> we we think. Oh well, we'll have to have a crash pad in in town. Uh -huh. Yeah, because <laughs> you could do that. You know, we make a couple million off of native plants, and then right? <laughs> and you're dropping the bucket for nursery owners like yourselves. It, it's, we're going to be rich. Yeah, her dad has a, a thing he's been saying for years, and it's really funny because it's it's very ironic, but he always says, we're going to be rich. Right. It's like, oh, yeah. I just went out and collected all these emery oak acorns. Yeah. So we're going to be rich. Native oak, which nobody buys, and they're really slow growing. And <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So we've been, yeah, that's been passed down to us now. That's great. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to that. So how, um, well, actually two, two nursery kind of practice questions. One is, it sounds like you guys are propagating a fair amount of the material that you sell. Like what are, um, you know, what are some considerations or, or, or complications for propagating the flora of your area? Like easy species, tough species, I don't know, however you want to flesh out an answer, but I'm super curious. Really, the biggest thing is space, but we seed grow most everything. Um, and part of the reason is that we don't have enough space yet to create a very good, um, you know, mist bench for, for doing asexual reproduction. And so um, we still have done a little bit of that, you know, in, in plastic bags over a pot or whatever. I but, personally have uh, heard that sexual reproduction is more fun anyway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we do prefer to grow from seed because we want genetic variation. You know, we, we, we're sort of the opposite of what most nurseries do, which is they want consistency and they want perfect looking plant in a pot. And, it, and it, you know, it's the same thing as a grocery store when you buy tomatoes, they're bred to be um, table, I mean, a, a shelf stable. And um, plants are being bred in horticulture to be nursery stable and to look really good when they sell. And um, we don't give a damn about that. We, in fact, we have a lot of plants that we sell when they're dormant. You know, we've sold a lot of plants that look like just dirt because they, they're in Asclepius. It's not uh, above ground, you know, it hasn't um, come out of dormancy yet. But people who know and who want that plant will buy it and they trust us. And, uh, <laughs> if, and it feels funny because like I just sold a pot <laughs> <Deep> of dirt. <laughs> but it had a beautiful root system in it, I'm sure. That, that's yeah, right. You feel the tuber. <laughs> that's right. So yeah, and there's, you know, and, and native plants don't, uh, especially here, a lot of native plants don't look good in containers. Um, you know, some native grasses never really look good in a container. and and we sell more native grasses than any other nursery in Tucson, I think. Um, you know, we, we, we sell them every, every day. And um, before, when we first said we were going to sell a lot of native grasses, a lot of our uh, uh, colleagues in the area were like, oh, I can't, I can't give native grasses yeah. away. Yeah. But we share the enthusiasm for it. So that, that's, that's kudos to you guys because, you know, it's been our experience also that you know, somebody wants a showy wildflower or a nice shrub and that the grasses and other graminoids are, you know, it's an, it's an education mission, put it that way. Um, yeah. You know, I always want to grow a lot of different such species because they're really integral parts of natural landscapes around here. And it's like, what, what is this thing? You know, it's like, it's not <laughs> even a grass, what the fuck is it? And it doesn't look like anything necessarily, but there, there's, you know, 250 Carex species and they're all adapted for some different condition. And from a restoration perspective, it's awesome. So you guys do have some pretty cool grasses out there. And I was trying to think like, what overlaps do we have between our flora and your flora? And I think that at least some of that, there's gonna be, you know, like little blue stem and, uh, and, and butyloa, critopendula. Um, yeah. those, those are in both places, although butylo is super rare here. It's like, if you have like a totally scraped out marble quarry or something like that, it might be hanging off a little crag and like, you know, like a little, um, something that looks about as close to Arizona as you can get in New Jersey. 
And uh, <laughs> I guess there's Asclepius tuberosa I saw on your website. I was like, oh, no. Yeah, Do you guys have any Aurelias out there? This is totally a random. Question. Yeah, yeah, we have Rismosa. Oh, sweet. Uh, I think it's Rismosa. Yeah. yeah. So they, yeah. Um, it's funny because recently I was misidentifying it. Talk about misidentifying plants, but um, it's a that group I don't know that well, and I kept passing it off as, oh, that's just uh, um, Sambucus Rismosa. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, which is a, you know, a, a, a brighter, it's not a blue fruit, it's a reddish yeah. fruit. And so like, um, it, cause it was dormant every time we saw it. So I just kind of blew it off as like, oh, it's just that. And then, uh, on closer inspection, I was like, oh my God, this is Aurelia. <laughs> so like, yeah, we do have that. We have a lot in common. I mean, more in common than people would think because Arizona is a, um, What's the word for that? Uh, uh, geological term uh, where faults pull apart. Yeah, and basin. Yeah, basin and range. <laughs> basin and range uh, geography, um, which causes uh, this is w- with the combination of basin and range geology and then uh, dry um, climate and tropical influence. Um, we have so many different. Um, you can you can drive in one little drive that's only an hour long and you can go from uh um, saguaro forest with palo verde and um choya cactus and and all that and end up um in pine forest with douglas fir so um because of that basin range because it, it they call it sky islands here it's on the top of the um mountains is the, are these little islands of, uh, what used to be, um, more common all over here, you know, before the climate change. So, uh, uh compound question for you related to that. So when we were down there, we went to, a uh, old copper mine, I think it was Cortland something, uh, really cool place. They had guided tours and the woman there was saying that they, when they were looking for copper, they would look for Ocotillos because I guess they were limestone indicators and copper was most likely to precipitate out in limestone or something like that. When you guys work with plants and, or when you're out doing field botany, are you, um, are you thinking geologically at all about substrate or pH or composition of the rock? Like, does that affect, like, do you have acidophile species and other ones that like a richer or more calcareous substrate or how does that play out for you with your flora? It absolutely plays out. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're just learning that stuff though. Um, it's, uh, and it's something that I always talk about with people, but, um, like it used to be only plants, you know, um, when I first moved here, that's all I cared about. I had blinders on. I didn't look at anything else. And um, as I've gotten older, I, you know, I've started to fall in love with moths and birds and all these, because the more you learn about all the other aspects of the ecology, you learn more about the plants that you love so much. And you're like, that's why that motherfucker is like that. You know, like <laughs> it, it just teaches you more about why, because everything evolves because of everything else's influence. Yeah. So whether that's geology or, or, um, you know, uh, moths and butterflies have absolutely impacted the evolution of plants and, um, you know, so, yeah. So we're just learning that in geology. It's funny you bring that up. Cause like I've been studying a lot of it lately. I've just been cramming my six or seven year old self is 
much more knowledgeable because I, my early childhood was in Oregon and I was there when Mount St. Helens blew. Right. So biggest geological event of our, of our time. And, and uh, that made me fall in love with science actually. Um, and so uh, it's actually because in Mount St. Helens that I'm probably such a geek. Um, <laughs> really, I was just like, there's floating rocks in the Columbia River. What the hell is that? You know, and I had to find out the answers. And actually, I'm already doing that. So I was already a geek, probably. But I like to blame Mount St. Helens. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, getting to learn that stuff, especially, uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a it's a new field that people are and there's papers out there and there's um, even a few books, but but not a lot of literature out there on that subject. And especially here, I think it's even more so than most places because it's so dry. Yeah. yeah, the geology there is so stark. It's like, uh, it's just incredible to me to have it right out there. I don't know if you've uh, checked out Basin and Range by John McPhee, but that's... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I have read that. Uh, yeah, and I need to read, I read it, that was the first geology book I read. And I was like, I think I'm a little in over my head here. I need to go back to like geology 101. And so I, I've been doing that. And, uh, and also just reading other books on like, um, you know, the history of the plates and all that. So you just understand the basics and I'm getting it now. Um, do you, do you follow, uh, uh, what's his butt? Um, Joey. Joey Centauri. Centauri. Crime pays, but botany doesn't. Somebody recommended that to me. Actually, I know who it is. I'm sorry, Tanya. I uh, forgot all about it right away, but I'll check that out. That That's a brilliant title for starters. So. He talks about geology and plants okay, all the all right. time. I'm, uh, I'll write it down. More knowledgeable about that than <laughs> I am. Because his, his, his uh, first career, well, he went to college for geology and then dropped out, but that was his, he, he has a very good grounding right. in geology and now he's doing, you know, he's very much into botany now. And uh, so he talks about that relationship all the time. He's got a pretty good knowledge of that. Cool. It's been something like that. I feel very much a beginner at also, but I've been trying to figure out our local geology. And my son is like really into just rock, going out rock hounding. Like if I want to get him at the house, I'm just like, we're going to go look at rocks. He's like, he's got his boots on. He's running out the door. I don't care if he's got a jacket or not. Um, so that's helped too. So it's kind of like our, our interests have, you know, matched in this nice way. So um, I'm always curious about the distribution of plants on like different types of geology or like I mentioned marble offhand with the butyloa earlier, but there are certain plants where it's like you much more likely to maybe find certain kind of diverse community on marble or on some really acidic rock or, you know, New Jersey is a pretty rad place for that. We've got a lot going on for a small, for a small state, but um, all right. <laughs> without giving away any trade secrets, like what do you guys do for growing mix with such like Zurich loving plants? Like, I'm We curious. struggled with that at first because, uh, you know, the, the first, when we first got back into it, um, I should back up and say, I did used to own a nursery back in the nineties. Um, when I was in my twenties, I, I had a small nursery and I grew mostly for like botanical gardens and researchers, just nerd. It was like a super nerd, uh, you know, um, nursery, um, but it was really small. Um, and then I got out of it cause I got out away from botany because I just needed to get my head out of it for a while. And also I, it was dawning on me that, um, 
that someone who doesn't come from an affluent background is not going to be very uh, have a very good time in botany because most of the people who I know who are botanists only botanists and not having to wait tables at night uh, you know they don't have to worry about making money as much as I do so um, I was a little I was upset about that when I kind of realized <laughs> that so I pulled away we got back into it you know, a few years ago, and um, we, were, we were doing this, you know, our first mix we did, everything died. And it was because uh, the compost that we sourced was very alkaline, like super alkaline. And so it, it was horrible for our soils already alkaline. So like our water is alkaline. Our water, yeah. So that was frustrating. And I, I was like really depressed at the time because I was like, fuck, did I forget how to do all this, you know? <laughs> And, but then we figured it out. It was like, oh, it's, it's, the, it, it was, it wasn't totally our fault. Um, so we're always playing around with that. Um, and we, you know, we work, we, we work with, uh, Tucson's very community oriented. So we have some really good growers that we work with and, and actually we're soon going to be selling potting soil that we've sort of worked with uh, a friend of ours on, um, cause we wanted a potting soil that wasn't in plastic. We're just very anti-plastic, <laughs> single-use plastic. We just try not to have it all. And so um, so we worked on this soil blend with a friend of ours and uh, it's it's in those big paper bags like you buy sometimes buy chicken food in that's sewn up at the top yes, yeah. and completely compostable and everything. So, so uh, you know, and it's, uh, it, it's not, I don't totally different. I mean, there are some things that are different, you know, um, but it's, it's like composting, right? Composting is meant to um, fix the problem. When we, when we scraped away everything to build our houses, all that, all that year, all those years of succession and soil development got erased. And so we're always dealing with um, catastrophic um, disturbance. And that's why you compost is like a, a quick way of rebounding all those microorganisms to, to put back into your soil. And, um, but it's not bringing it back. You ne it, that'll never be back. It's gone, you know, no matter where you live, but especially in the desert, like you scrape that stuff away here, you've gotten rid of thousands of years of succession. So um, we're doing a, a gross approximation that might help the plants and some plants will not be happy with that. And that's the, that's just tough, tough shit. Yeah. <laughs> Cause they just can't fake that. But um, so with the soil, it's kind of the same lesson. It's like, we're, we're not, we, you don't mimic nature exactly because um, you can't nature takes thousands of years to develop that stuff. So we have to do some kind of quick way to do that. And so we're using compost, we're using, um, sort of the, a lot of the basic stuff that most people use, um, some native soil, chicken poop. We try to also use, um, um, you know, we use pelletized chicken poop that come from the industries um, in the local area. And we're trying to locally source all those yeah. ingredients. So um, coconut core is a really big thing here too. I don't know if it is over there. We tried growing with it with a specific product for like, you know, most of our, uh, you know, up until maybe last year or so, because we we're really adamantly trying to avoid growing with peat. Yeah. And, um, you know, one day our supplier was not able to deliver and we're like, oh, we got to get some of that peat stuff just to tide us over. And we're like, holy fuck, look at our, like, 
I did some trials and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm sorry, maybe it's just this formulation. Like, you know, it was like organic, it was local, it was core based and it just fucking blew. Like, it, sorry, folks, I'm not naming any names, but um, it's been a big difference. Yeah, just, part, of that, different part, of the, part of that's the way that uh, coconut core has been processed too. When it first showed up in Tucson, it was horrible stuff. It was salty. And, uh, and it's the way that they process it. And then finally, um, another source came through and the, it was way better, but it's, uh, the problem here is that it's expensive. So, um, yeah, yeah so we don't really use it yet, but uh, a lot of people do the, the cactus nurseries can afford it because they're the cactus and succulent nursery sell plants and they're this big and they're, they cost the same as some of our big plants do. So, <laughs> So they can, you know, get that return. But yeah. Are there are there a couple plants that you guys either really love growing for whatever reason or that are kind of holy grail plants for you where it's like, oh, I really want to be able to, you know, propagate successfully or grow successfully this plant like down the line? I feel like there's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of plants that we're uh because there's so many new, there's so many plants that have not been pulled into cultivation. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like you might be the first person like trying to, I mean, I know that's an exaggeration, but it's not like a tomato, like you're saying with, you know, thousands of years of agronomy behind it. It's like, you might be the first person who's deliberately trying to propagate XYZ plant from seed. It's yep. like, yeah. Yeah, especially when it's sedges, right? <laughs> some weird graminoid or something. Yeah, which is not showy, you know, but it's cool for some other reason. I, I, I feel like our uh, emphasis has always been um, trying to share our enthusiasm for the plants. Um, and um, so, so it's, uh, I mean, there are definitely holy grail plants, but it's more of the challenge of like, how do we get people into buying this or that, you know, and, and putting this in their landscape. And so what we do is we share that information, like, oh, it's super important. If you're talking about flora restoration, which is what we are always talking about, um, why are you avoiding the grasses? Yeah. And so- Or the um, ugly plants. Yeah, the ugly plants. <laughs> we do the ugly posts. We yeah. should start doing I mean, that again. Yeah, there's plants here that are key, you know, in, in, little um oops in um i can't think of the word and uh pioneering little ecosystems yeah, yeah pioneering and restoration and but people think that they're weeds because yeah, they sure. do like end up everywhere they are weeds they are weeds but they um, are local weeds <laughs> but they're native and they're you know amazing and to you know for for bugs and birds and you know, it's like, this is something that we need to keep going in the landscape as it's being taken out um, and teaching people about that. And we've gotten them to grow a lot of what everyone considers ugly plants. Or, or weed. Some of them are not necessarily that ugly, but like desert broom. Yeah. Desert broom, Baccarus cerethroides, an asterisk shrub, um, is uh, really um, the, the female, it's, it's dioecious, so there's males and females. The females are really weedy. If you got one in your yard, it has this fluff that comes out and then they come up everywhere and it's a big shrub. If you don't pull it in time, it's really annoying. Um, so most people have this like sort of negative experience with that plant. 
However, if you're an entomologist and you, or even a, 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 an ornithologist and that plant is blooming, that's where you go because everything's gonna be on that plant. It has the most nectar rich flowers you can imagine. And because all those insects are drawn there, then all these um, uh, you know, shrub gleaning birds are gonna be in there um, gleaning insects. And so uh, it's a, it's a uh, almost a keystone plant, um, not quite, but it, it kind of is in yeah. its own way. Cause it's a pioneer plant, but it's uh, yeah. So, but it's super weedy, but we sell them and uh, we sell the males so that you don't end up with, um, you know, a bunch of seedlings. Um, however, then you also got to fight the, you probably get this a lot too, but people think they're allergic to everything. And uh, we are always re-educating people. Like if the flowers are yellow and really bright, you're not allergic to it because it's attracting bees and it has sticky pollen. Like you guys have goldenrod, which we have in common. Um, in this case, it's not even a yellow flower, it's fluff. It's like the seed fluff. And they just associate that with their, their allergies. And um, it's frustrating. Like we do this every day where just tell, we have to like back people up. I know your grandma told you you're allergic to it. And I don't mean to like bad talk your <laughs> nana, but she didn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> Every day, palaverdes and mesquites are are really big. They're blamed for allergies, and even the, the hardest thing is, some of the doctors will also tell you you're allergic to it because they'll test your blood, and you could be allergic to it. But unless you're like rubbing your nose in a in those sticky flowers, you're not getting the pollen in your nose because yeah. you know allergenic plants are um, they don't waste time on petals. They, they you know they're grasses, they're um, pines, they're um, plants that that don't that um, you don't notice when they're blooming. Um, so what you do is when you are suffering, you look around and what's what's blooming right now, it's, oh, it's that yellow thing. That's what's like getting you. So yeah. it's really hard to. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, but yeah, we like to sell those plant kind of plants. <laughs> plants that piss off Nana. <laughs> or your, yeah. Um. Uh, I want to ask you, you mentioned it a little bit already about like the destruction of the soil biome in the desert. And one of the things I really, um, as a field botanist here, I key into is the land use history of a site. Like what happened here before and how is that influencing the plant community? And it's, it's an overwhelming influence in this area in terms of, you know, what, um, what assemblage of plants you might find in any given site that's going to have a lot to do with, well, you know, was it a pasture 70 years ago, or um, was it a woodlot, or was it an ag field? And um, I know your situation there is a little bit different, but one of the things that we picked up on just driving through the Southwest, and I hope I'm not just genericizing the Southwest here, but there's all these rangelands with cattle all over, and you look in past like the little fence and it's just like fucking creosote bush for like 10 million miles. And then right outside the fence along the road, there's like grasses and stuff like that. And it's like, this is just a naive question, but it boggles my mind that like the couple sparse cattle you see on what looks to me to be like infinite space from a New Jersey perspective have had such an incredible effect on like these vast areas of rangeland, but like, am I making this up or is this for reals? And like, what's, what's the story behind that? It's for real. <laughs> yeah, it's real. Um, um, yeah, that would probably be one of the biggest 
um, historical land disturbance issues. There's some of it's just blading for agriculture. And like if you're driving from Phoenix to Tucson, you'll see these vast creosote uh, fields and um, their old agriculture fields. Um, so agriculture is a huge um, uh, disturbance here too. And then mining, there's a lot of mining stuff too. People just building roads and stuff. But um, cattle ranching is- Is huge. Huge. Um, and it's been going on so long and, and somewhat you know, unregulated in certain times that s certain areas just get decimated. Yeah. Um, it's, it's unreal. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't ever come back, you know, like it's also um, with ranching too, they, well, not just ranching, with ranching and with um, um, uh, the, oh God, who did that? It was uh, one of the government's, governmental departments um, really helped introduce a lot of native weeds, which uh, impacted you guys as well. Um, you know, there was actually one guy who, uh, I forget his name, but there's this guy um, who uh, wasn't even from the U.S., but he worked for the government and he spent all his time in Russia and Eurasia um, uh, finding new plans to bring to the States for erosion control. Yeah. And uh, so th that's a problem here, too. And the worst one is out where her her uh, parents live in Cochise County and in Santa Cruz County, south of Tucson, um, where one native grass, I mean, one non-native grass is completely dominant now. There's no way it's ever going to change. It's now a part of the flora, but it's a, it's an African love grass, Aragrastis, uh, Aragrastis, uh, um, I can't oh, think shit. of the species right now, but anyway, it's, a uh, uh, it's an Aragrastis species and, uh, it is now like the dominant species and has pushed out a lot of native grass. So that's, that's a huge thing. And the worst thing about it is it's not that even that great of a cattle food. Yeah. Um, so, uh, native grasses are superior, but, uh, so anyway, the, yeah, the, the it's, combination of that with the, and it's just that opportunistic where it is, you know, gets a foothold on the season before all the native stuff does. That yeah. It just takes over. Yeah. Um, yeah. It starts slightly earlier because all, all of our grassland, desert grassland is a warm season growing community. And, um, but that grass uh, can start just a little earlier and take advantage of some of those late winter rains. Whereas the native grasses usually wait for a monsoon. So um, that's another reason that it took over. Um, but yeah, ranching is huge here. And yeah. there, there are some ranchers who are starting to acknowledge like how the effects that it has on the land and they're trying to do it more ethically. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of a drop in the bucket, too little, too late kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And they're doing it because there's these much bigger problems now, which is uh, uh, like in, in Cochise County where there these international um, meat producers are moving in they have these giant, um, you know, they grow corn and then they feed cattle. Corn um, and alfalfa. Corn. Yeah. But they're feeding cattle and uh, they do it, because, you know, they're coming here because Arizona has this policy. They're just desperate to get new business in Arizona and they don't think about the cost of it. Um, and, uh, and so these, you know, these places are, these, some of these countries, um, they're from uh, Saudi Arabia and 
um, a couple other places, they don't care about what happens if they drain our water table and they are draining our water table. So that's bigger than almost anything right now uh, are those international farms. Um, and so the ranchers are responding to that because their lifestyle is threatened by that. And so they've become the environmentalists, which, you know, back in the eighties, they were, you know, it's like environmentalists and ranchers are at each other and now they're, now they're teaming together. up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm, we'll see, we'll see what happens. <laughs> it's weird. Cause we definitely have a lot of threats to our flora. Um, but we also have a lot of stuff that's still intact. And I think mostly because like I was joking before, everyone's like, why would anyone want to go there? That place is weird. Um, that that's impression that, that, that Arizona, especially Southern Arizona is just a, a vast wasteland kept a lot of people out of here from, and from, from, you know, over utilizing it. And, um, and so there are still a lot of places left and we, you know, I've watched it in my lifetime in 30 years of watching it, like a lot of it disappear. And that especially in uh, Southern Arizona and Sonora too, um, which, you know, in this area, those of us who are here because of the borderlands really don't see that as a different place. It's Sonora is part of our area. Um, and uh, it's been decimated, but it's still a lot more intact than, than where you're at, you know, where the flora is like long gone. Um, or at least a lot of the flora is long gone. Uh, California is even worse. Like you cannot tell what the native trees are when you're driving around LA. Like you just don't know. Because people, they plant, you know, they plant <laughs> oleanders and stuff. Like, uh, yeah, so. <clears throat> so yeah, just being being ugly was, was uh, beneficial for us. <laughs> Ugly and I want to let you guys go, but I don't want to let you go without asking about your costume dress up rock and roll dance parties. <laughs> so he started that. Yeah. And then I talked her into doing it. Um, so I, 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 I started this uh, group um, and it's more of an, it was, I mean, I was a promoter, um, you know, I worked at a club and I used to book a club and then I started doing sort of these freelance shows where um, I really wanted to feature local music and I wanted it to be a dance party. I like this idea of dance parties, but rock and roll dance parties. And so um, we always had themes. The, the group, uh, first it was called Powhouse and then, um, and then it was reformed into Meow Meow Productions. Um, but uh, we just did these dress up dance parties and gave people this opportunity to just have a lot of fun. Um, one of our more famous shows, which uh, you saw some of the pictures, I sent you some of those pictures um, was, was from a show called Glitter Ball, which is a tribute to like seventies glam rock. Um, so we'd feature all these bands who were playing that music in that style somewhat. And in between live sets, we DJed on vinyl, of course, uh, you know, all that kind of music and uh, people dressed up and glam was a really easy subject. But um, just to up the ante, we, um, the party was always hosted by um, my alter ego, alter ego. So in order to do the shows, I, I, I couldn't do it as my nerdy self. Like I, I didn't think I was cool enough. So I created this character called Kitty Cat and he is the host. But for the glitter ball, Kitty Cat got um, an alter ego um, in the style of Bowie 
so he became Kitty Quasar, who was a uh, he was this gold alien, and of course he's from Uranus. Um, he has a big gold collar, just very much like the campy sci-fi Barbarella-esque uh, sort of looking dude. And then uh, when we got together, I convinced her to dress up that way too. And uh, <laughs> she had to have little hands for some reason. We just had, we got rid of these doll hands, you know, as part of the costume. So she always had these tiny useless hands, which I don't know. I why. Don't know we where. just did it because it was funny. And we would make these videos to promote the party but it was almost like I was more into making those videos than the actual party sometimes. Cause it was fun <laughs> all green screened, you know? Uh, and then, yeah, we do these big parties and then, Oh, and we baptized people in glitter uh, as long as they promised never to be born again. So, um, so there was that too. And we just dump glitter and people voluntarily let us dump buckets of glitter on them. Um, and they just had the greatest time. We don't do that anymore because, uh, you know, learning that glitter is probably a terrible waste. We, we decided not to do that anymore. But yeah, once once they come up with an expensive, environmentally friendly glitter, then maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Pelletized chicken manure. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> new a, glitter. That's right. <laughs> we could probably convince them to do it. Well, it sounds like you guys are having a really good time there. It's been really fun talking to fellow sort of renegade radical nursery owner couple. There's some really funny overlaps between us that I didn't really realize when I just, I think I saw your stuff on Instagram on like the native plant tag or whatever. I was like, well, this looks like a really rad nursery and they, you know, have nice photos and they're getting the word out. And then I looked, I was like, all right, there's a botanist named Jared R and he and his partner have a native plant nursery and they're like all organic and radical. And they're, and it was just sort of like this kind of, I mean, not to overstress it, but there was just a sort of alter ego thing. And then you had that Sun Ra post the other day and I was like, you're listening to Sun Ra also. So anyway, I'll look forward to an excuse to continue the conversation at some point. And well, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, yeah thanks. thanks. Thanks for having us. Definitely. I'll talk to you soon and I'll let you know how this all pans out and when it's going up. Cool. 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 Take care. Take it easy.